Ephesians 5.21-33 Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The word of the Lord. Good morning, guys. Good morning, guys. Thank you. All right. Uh, We are continuing our walk through the book of Ephesians. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and uh, we've been camping in Ephesians 5 for, I guess, the last four weeks or so, uh, as we've just been unpacking this gift of marriage, this idea of what it means um, to get the most out of marriage, right? That that God's the one that designed it, and um, there are some things that, that... he lays out for us to get the most from it. So we've looked at uh, the origins of marriage and roles in marriage, and um, this morning we're going to continue that. We are uh, unpacking um, the idea of sex. Uh, Our culture is um, obsessed with, with, with sex, and I would say obsessed with the gospel of sex, the good news of sex. The word gospel means good news. Uh, People become evangelists of what they love always, right? I mean, that's just the reality. If you love golfing, you're going to be a golfing evangelist. If you, if you love the NBA, that's what you're going to talk about. If, if you, um, I don't know, if you, whatever you love, you end up talking about, right? And you end up promoting it. And if somebody from some other country or from outer space were to come and analyze our culture, they would find a few gospels in our culture, a few things that we apparently think are incredibly good news. And there's no doubt about it. One of those things would be sex, right? I mean, it's, if you were to watch our sitcoms, Right? What, what is the central tension of almost every sitcom on TV? It has to do with sexual relationships, right? If you were to watch our commercials, I mean, we use sex to sell toothpaste. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like it is so prevalent in our society that, that, that images of a sexual nature, suggestive things, like if you brush your teeth, you know, you're going to be more attractive, right? That, I mean, everything is tied in um, to this because we, we have in our culture a good news, a gospel of sex and and. Um, and we're saying, hey, there's this thing, and isn't it great? We celebrate it, we talk about it, we're infatuated with it, but honestly, culturally, we don't understand it. We get it wrong all the time. You know why? It's because we try to isolate it. We try to treat sex as if it were a thing to itself, an event that you could just host, a a physical activity that you can just do um, without it being tied into anything else. The the challenge is God designed sex to be part of a a package deal. (laughs) There are other things that come with sex that are inseparable from it. 
the good news of sex um, was designed by God not to be isolated into a meaningless physical activity. The good news of sex, and this is the kind of where we're going this morning, was designed to point us to the good news of Jesus. <laughs> and I know that may be a little weird, <laughs> but it's true. The good news of sex was designed by God. He's the one that gave us this gift, and he, he gave it to us to point us to the good news of Jesus. And, and for our marriages, here's, the, here's, here's kind of the kicker of the application. The good news about Jesus is what's going to enable us to get the most out of the good news of sex. That the giver of the gift will equip us to get the most out of the gift as we honor him. Um, so let's unpack this a little bit. We've talked about this. We're going to look at verses 31 and 32 primarily this morning. But take a look again at verse 31. In verse 31, at the end of the argument, Paul quotes from from Genesis chapter 2. And he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now we've unpacked these ideas in in previous sermons. There are three things here that that, um, kind of package how we're supposed to understand and engage sexual behavior. Um, God, the giver of the good gift, then laid down guidelines about how to get the most out of that gift. And and those guidelines are pretty simple. Leave, hold fast, and then become one flesh, right? Leave, we talked about that. That idea is that it says a young man is is to leave. And there's an idea, a a, a sense here in which a young man is being called to move into independence, right? The first step toward having a fulfilling sexual relationship is to actually develop self, right? To, to, to become independent emotionally and spiritually, financially, right? If you're still living in your mother's basement, not a good time to get married. Definitely not a good time to start having sex. Um, if, you're, if you're unable to support yourself or to bear weight, right? The whole point behind this is that a, that a boy is supposed to become a man. Boys don't make good husbands, you need a man to be a good husband. You need somebody who's going to be able to actually bear weight, right? When hard things come, you don't want them curled up in the fetal position in the corner, crying, mommy, right? You want, you want somebody who's going to be able to actually stand up against the resistance of life and be able to carve away and move forward. Not that he's perfect, not that he has all the strength in the world, but he's developed a sense in which he can stand on his own two feet, emotionally, spiritually, financially, and he's become independent. Now, we're not in any way saying that women shouldn't also follow the same path. Women should be moving into a healthy sense of independence. But in the marriage relationship, we've talked about this, that primarily the man is is called by God to initiate in that independence, to call a young woman into his strength so that they can become stronger together. And that's the hold fast piece. Leave and then hold fast. That's that's covenant language. What he's saying is, is... Okay, you've, you've, you've developed a character of strength and independence. Go pursue a godly young woman. Win her heart, right? Learn how to love her and, and initiate in such a way that she comes to love you and then invite her not to share your bed, but to share your life. Not simply to hook up, but to hold fast, to move into covenant relationship. You, you invite that young woman into a lifelong commitment of covenant, right? Where you're committing yourselves to one another in the power of God for the rest of your lives. Saying, I invite you into my strength that we might become stronger together, that we might love each other, complete each other, serve each other, love each other. 
right? And so you hold fast in the gift of marriage, and then you become one flesh. <laughs> then uh, comes sex, right? Um, the, the language of Genesis is very graphic, right? The Bible generally uh, is not too concerned about, um, you know, God, when he says it, he just says it straight out, right? Uh, and, and so that idea of becoming one flesh is, is clearly speaking of intercourse, that idea that, that sex is supposed to be reserved for covenant relationship in marriage, right? And, and that that is a, a seal of oneness. And, and the gift of marriage is, is honestly much greater than simply sex, the gift of marriage, anybody who's married for any length of time knows this, the true gift of marriage is oneness. That sense in which the two become one. That sense in which you don't become less of yourself, you become more of yourself as you, as you bond yourself to another. And God does something in that, right? Because the oneness of marriage isn't just physical. It's physical and it's emotional and it's spiritual. It's a, it's a holistic sense of, of the two becoming one. Culturally, we try to isolate sex. Our culture tries to, to isolate it into its own discrete thing, right? It's just a thing. It's no big deal. Um, and, and, and the challenge behind that is, is physical oneness, emotional oneness, and spiritual oneness are not discrete spheres in which we operate. Now, they can be. You can have a friend that you can move into emotional oneness with, right? You can become emotionally closer to somebody. You can have a spiritual mentor, somebody you pray with that you move closer into spiritual oneness with. But you're never truly going to become one with that person. You can move into oneness. You can experience community with that person. But there's something unique in the marriage relationship that is sealed by the physical act of sex. And sex was never designed by God to be isolated from emotional and spiritual oneness. If you try to isolate it, it ruins it. It ruins it. If you try to separate sex from the entire package of oneness, no matter how great the physical experience is, in the end, it will hurt, not heal. It will will bring emotional pain, isolation. Physical sex, if that's all there is, is in fact dehumanizing. Anybody who's um, been part of the hookup culture knows this. That series of one-night stands does not enrich, it robs. It doesn't make things better. It, it, it devastates. It dehumanizes. In a good marriage relationship in which two people are moving into oneness, the worst sex can still be a great experience because it's not dehumanizing. And it's not even about the physical experience itself. It's about celebrating the other. It's about moving into oneness with this person that you love and by whom you are loved. And sex becomes that thing that, that celebrates the integrity of the covenant of marriage. It not only seals it, we call that consummation, but it celebrates it and renews it, which is why um, you'll hear me say a lot that, that believers um, should generally have, you know, if you're married, you should be having great sex. That should be a healthy, regular part of your marriage relationship. That honors God. It honors your marriage, right? Generally, our singles are having way too much sex, and our married are not having enough. And so um, we talk about that because sex is itself a way of celebrating the covenant of marriage. Now, I was trying to, to come up with an analogy that would help me to unpack this idea of physical and spiritual oneness, and I, and I thought about concentric circles, and I, and I thought about pyramids. And, and honestly, this is the best diagram I could come up with to help us understand this. 
Um, seriously, that's a trampoline. Uh, they're a lot of fun. Um, the thing with a trampoline is the whole point is to go high, right? Isn't that the whole point? If, if you don't want to go high, you generally don't even want to get on it. It's, it's like bouncing, right? But in order to go high, what do you have to do? You have to go deep, right? The deeper you go on the trampoline, the higher you go on the spring, right? Right? And so there's that sense in which you have to really dig in um, to, to the trampoline uh, to get any, any height. Well, this is the metaphor that I want you to think about. Oneness is something in marriage um, that is more like a trampoline than a, than a ladder. When you're moving into oneness in marriage, it's not like this progressive climb that's always, always getting better. <laughs> You've been married, you know that. <laughs> it's more like a trampoline. Like there are seasons in which you experience tremendous oneness. Seasons in which everything's clicking and it's wonderful. And then there are seasons where you feel like you're falling. Seasons where it just feels like it's a little bit out of reach. And here's the thing. If our marriages are not only going to be built to last, but are actually going to move from good to great, we need to be able to go deep, to rebound. And the only way to go deep is to move through emotional oneness to spiritual oneness. Think about it like this. If, if, if all you have is a sexual relationship, you're on a trampoline that doesn't bounce at all. You're just standing there trying to jump. There's no oneness, which is why that activity becomes incredibly dissatisfying and, in fact, dehumanizing. Because the point of sex was never simply the physical pleasure. It was, it was the, the oneness that comes with it. And, and so if there's no bounce at all, man, that's just a horrible place to be. And people that live there, um, they become some of the most miserable people you ever want to meet. And so you have to have a deeper level of oneness than simply the physical connection. The next level of oneness is emotional connectedness. And, and emotional connectedness um, definitely deepens that sense of, of oneness. Um, there's a sense in which uh, when you're emotionally connected, it gives you something to, to bounce into that pushes you, right? So if, if there's somebody that you enjoy being with, your friends, right? You share common interests. You, you, you enjoy conversation with each other. You, you, you actually get to know them and they get to know you. Uh, there's a sense in which w- when, when you come down, that, that gives you some rebound, right? I mean, that, that allows you to go a little bit higher, a little bit more into oneness. And honestly, a lot of people, that's what they base their marriage on. This sense of we're physically attracted to one another. We enjoy one another's company. That's good enough. And it's going to have to be good enough. And for a lot of people, they can, they can make good marriages out of emotional connectedness, at least for a season. But, but the challenge is this, you guys. Emotions are incredibly fickle. Emotions change. Emotions are unpredictable. And while you might find great friendship and delight in your spouse um, there's no guarantee that's going to last and probably, in fact, it probably won't. Uh, you guys know, I mean, you're, you're always changing, right? Right? Are, are you the same person you were two years ago? Probably not. Probably significantly different. That's life. You continue to change. Like I've sat down with people and they're like, Steve, you don't understand, man. I'm just not the same person I was when I got married. And I'm like, duh. Did you really think that when you got married, everything just turned static? That nothing changed? 
right? The whole point of marriage is, is not that I'm attracted to you and I'll never fall out of attraction to you. It's that we fall in love and we need to continually fall in love. If our emotions are as deep as we go, our marriages are probably not going to be built to last and they're definitely not going to go from good to great, right? Because our emotions change. Our emotions are, are self-centered. Our emotions are responses to stimuli and, and they're really just not going to be a good foundation for, for good marriages. They can't sustain the long-term pressure. I mean, when a crisis comes into your marriage and, and you find suddenly that you need to go deep I mean, deep to rebound back into oneness. Emotional connectedness is not going to give you the deep bounce you need. It'll betray you and it'll leave you empty. You need something deeper, something that that is strong enough to withstand really all the crises of life, something that is strong enough to to rebound and keep you moving into oneness. And, And honestly, that only comes from spiritual oneness. Spiritual oneness is the deepest, the most powerful motivator for oneness in marriage. And it is the only thing that can really deliver you to the greatest experience of oneness with someone that you love. And God built it this way, you guys. God built it this way. He didn't make sex an isolated act. He, he put it into this, this web of experience for a purpose. And honestly, that purpose isn't about you. It's about him. He he built it this way because it's supposed to point us not to our fulfillment, but to his fulfillment. Not to our joy, but the joy he gives in response or out of his love for us. It's about him. In fact, take a look at verses 31 and 32 again. 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis chapter 2, verse 32. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Some of you are like, yeah, I, I get it. Sex is mysterious. <laughs> Married guys know it. <laughs> sometimes it just is great. Sometimes I don't know what went wrong, right? Sometimes she likes me. Sometimes she seems to hate me, right? But that's not the kind of mystery we're talking about. I'm not talking about the, the weird mystery of your wife's heart, okay? That, that she is that mystery. She's an enigma. It's your job to, to just figure it out, okay? You have to study her, learn how to love her, and, and provoke her to love. Um, figure that out. What we're talking about here is a biblical mystery. A biblical mystery isn't something that's hard to figure out. A biblical mystery is not a riddle. A biblical mystery is something that's impossible to know unless God shows it to you. And then once he lifts the curtain and shows it to you, it makes perfect sense. But you would have never figured it out on your own. A biblical mystery is something you're running along and you're like, oh, this is great. And then all of a sudden God lifts the curtain and you're like, holy cow, I didn't see that. But now that I see it, I can't miss it, right? That's a biblical mystery. And what Paul is saying is that there is a mystery about marriage, a mystery about sex that reveals us something to us. And, and, and Paul says it's a profound mystery because when he quotes Genesis 2, he's no longer talking about us. He says, I am now talking about Christ and the church. In other words, Genesis 2.24 is not about us, not primarily. Genesis 2.24 is primarily 
about Jesus. Now, what the heck does that mean, right? How can that be about Jesus? Those are the guidelines for how we're supposed to move into a healthy marriage, sexual relationship with our spouse. How can that be telling us about God? Well, let's unpack that a little bit. Let's unpack that a little bit. How did God leave his father and his mother? How did God leave his father and his mother? Well, take a look at this. This is a quote from uh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to put it on the screen. Uh, I want you to read along as I, as I read this. Have this mind among yourselves. Okay, you followers of Christ, think this way. View the world this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's not natural to you. It only comes from Christ because it's his mind. And when you become a believer in Jesus, he, he changes the way you view the world, the way you think, the way you operate, because he gives you a new identity. Have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. All right, let me unpack that for a minute. When it says that he was in the form of God, it doesn't mean that he was in the shape of God. You know, that word form can trip us up a little bit. It doesn't mean he looked like God or kind of was similar to God. The word form means that he was, in fact, the essence of God. This is one of those very clear statements in Scripture that teach us that Jesus preexisted. That when he came to the earth, that was, in fact, simply a different form. He was, he was taking on a body, but he already existed. He was, in fact, in the form, the very essence of God. Jesus was the second person of the Trinity and, and continued to be, but he was in, in the form, in the essence of God himself. Yet he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, sometimes we talk about grasping things as if we, we try to understand them, right? Like, I can't grasp that. that he's not, it's not saying that Jesus didn't understand what it meant to be God. It's saying he didn't try to selfishly hold on to his experience of being God. He existed. Okay, let's go back to the beginning, right? God created man in his own image. We talked about this in a previous sermon. This crazy passage where God basically says, we will make God, man, in our image, right? God singular saying we, plural, right? Three who's, one what? One of the mysteries of the Bible. Something we would never know unless God revealed it to us, but God has a triune nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three who's, one what? One God, three people, completely equal in glory, in power, in character, in sovereignty, and yet distinct in personhood. And what that tells us is that God existed in perfect community, that love wasn't simply a concept God dreamed up. Love was an activity in the heart of God. For all of eternity, God was love and community and diversity and unity. He knows what it means to know and be known, to give and be given to, to treasure and to be treasured, to celebrate and be celebrated because God is completely self-sufficient in and of himself. When God created mankind, it wasn't because he was lonely and he needed a playmate. It was because there was so much of himself that he wanted it to flow out of him into the world he created. He wanted to create mankind in his image so he could pour out the overflow of his goodness into our lives. Not so that he might be enriched, but so that we might be enriched. So that his glory would be known and celebrated. Not because of his need, but because of his love. Now think again about what this verse is saying. Though he existed in the form of God, 
He did not consider equality with God a thing to be selfishly held on to. But instead, he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? Well, he didn't empty himself of his deity. God can't stop being God. The very definition of God is that God is God, right? God is omniscient. God is all-powerful. God, God is eternal. God can't cease. He can't take his attributes and simply take them off as if you're taking off a, an article of clothing. God is who he is. He emptied himself of his right to his glory. He emptied himself of his right to be um, inconvenienced. He emptied himself of his right to be unbothered. He emptied himself of his right not to suffer. He emptied himself and he put us first. He left his father. He didn't leave to grow up right? Because he didn't need to grow up, not like we do, like when we leave home, it's about us growing up and becoming independent. He didn't leave to grow up. He, he left to step up into the mission that God had put in front of him, his father had put in front of him, his mission to, to save and deliver. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, just take a moment and consider what a monumental act of love this was. There was no greater initiation in love ever known, or, or I think ever could be known, that the sovereign, holy God of the universe completely fulfilled and self-contained in His glory would humble himself. And God, being what he was, took on what he was not. God became man. That he might fully identify with the mankind he had created, but had rebelled against him. That he might ultimately die. Not the death he deserved, but the death we deserved in our place. That he might be so humbled that he was willing to face the humiliation of the very creation that he was dying to save. He left, and in leaving, demonstrated his love more powerfully, more clearly than anything else you can imagine. God demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until we were attractive enough. He didn't wait until we provoked it. He didn't look at us and say, wow, you're so beautiful. I'm just compelled to love you. He looked at us and he said, you are repulsive to me in your sin because you have committed cosmic treason. You were created in my image and you have marred that image. You were created for my love and you have rejected that love. You have walked away from me and you have turned to idols instead of me to give you what I can only give. But I will leave. I will leave. I will not hold on selfishly to my rights to remain as I am. I will identify myself with you, the rebel, and die a rebel's death so that you might become a son, so that you might become a daughter. He stepped into our weakness so he could invite us into his strength. Did you catch that? I love that. 
Young men, we're supposed to go out and become independent that we might invite a young woman into our strength. He stepped into our weakness that he might invite us into his strength. And he did it so that he could hold fast to us. So that he could move into covenant relationship with us. In the same way a young man moves into a covenant relationship with his bride, the woman that he loves in the same way that a young man is to woo a young woman and win her heart and invite her in to his independence and to his strength so that they can become strong together. God is initiated to move into covenant with us. And he offers us a covenant, not where we hold fast to him, but where he holds fast to us. Not where it's based on our ability to achieve and win for him, but it's based on his ability to keep us secure. He holds fast. And our security is secure because his grip is uh, infinitely strong. Jeremiah 31 talks about this covenant, this, this holding fast. Jeremiah 31 is a prediction of it. In Jeremiah 31, God is talking to the nation of Israel, the nation that he had covenanted himself to, during the Old Testament time, the Old Covenant, the, the law period of time. And he, and he says to them, I'm, there's something better coming. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, with the people of God. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by their hand, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their what? Husband. Husband. God had wed himself to his people. Now, what he's talking about there is, is when he, he created the, the covenants of law with the nation of Israel. There was a period in which, which he had just delivered them out of the nation of Egypt and, and they were wandering and, and, and God kind of showed up on this big mountain with a lot of fire and a lot of flame and, 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 and basically Moses went up and, and God's like, look, why don't you go down to the people and let's make a covenant. And you tell them, man, if, if you obey my laws, then you'll be my people, then you'll be blessed. And if you break my laws, then you'll be cursed. What do you think? Why don't you, why don't you go offer them that deal? So Moses comes down the mountain. And he's like, hey, you guys, God wants to enter into a covenant with us. It's a covenant of law. And, and if we keep his commandments, then we'll be blessed. And if we break them, then we'll be cursed. Right? And, and, and the people are like, yes, we'll do it. That's great. Right? And God starts off with 10 commands. That's it. 10. 10. First one, make no other, have no other God before me. Make no graven images. Right? Don't, don't worship idols. Don't turn to things that aren't me. As if they were me. Don't glorify things that aren't me as if they were me, right? So Moses goes back up on the mountain to, to get it. And, and while he's up on the mountain, the children of Israel are melting down all their gold and casting it into a calf to worship. You guys, that would be like getting married to somebody and, and he interrupts the vows to go sleep with a prostitute and then comes back to give you the kiss. And yet, God doesn't walk away. See, that's our heart. We're continually turning to everything that isn't God to be God. We're, we're constantly trying to glorify things that aren't God as if they were God. We're constantly attributing to things that are created, the attributes that only belong to the Creator. And we're dishonoring the God of the universe. We are committing cosmic treason. 
But God is a good husband who does not walk away. I'm going to create a new covenant with you. See, the old covenant was all about you perform. See, he didn't do that because that was plan A. He wasn't like, well, maybe if they're good enough, then they can earn my favor. What he was trying to do in creating that covenant was show us that we could never earn it. Like, even if I give you the best rule book in the world, I'll just give you 10 commands. You're still going to fail. He wasn't, in that sense, disappointed when we failed because he was hoping we would succeed. He was showing us that we couldn't succeed that there was another way than our performing for God. There was a way in which God was going to have to perform for us. He was showing us our absolute, complete helplessness before him. Look at the rest of this this passage. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. No longer will it be something over them that they have to work up to achieve. I'm going to fill them with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is going to change them, not not because they conform their behavior to look good, but because I'm going to transform their hearts, and that's going to change the way they behave. I'm I'm going to put their law within them. I'm going to write it on their hearts. It's not going to be on tablets of stone. It's, It's going to be in their heart, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one of them teach their neighbor... Uh, And each one their brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God was, in Jeremiah 31, predicting how he was going to create a marriage covenant. A covenant by which we could be forgiven and brought back into relationship with God. That's why Jesus had to die. Not to be a good example, not to show us how to live self-sacrificial lives, Jesus had to die to inaugurate a new covenant between us and God in which he was our substitute, taking the judgment we deserve so that we could stand in the life we could never earn. So that it was not based on our performance for God, but it was resting in his performance for us. And when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, something significant happens. The Holy Spirit comes in you. You no longer need a law. You have an internal motivating force that drives you to the one who loves you that changes you from the inside out. And when that happens, the New Testament uses two metaphors. It says you become his body. That's one of the primary metaphors in the book of Ephesians that we've been studying, this idea that we're his body and he's the head. Where All of us become a community led by the headship of Christ. But the other metaphor is this, we become the bride of Christ. The one that he loves and that he has laid down his life to win. We become the bride of Christ. And you know what? If forgiveness were all he offered, that would be enough because we've been pardoned from the world's greatest debt, the greatest debt you could ever imagine, the debt of cosmic treason before a sovereign and holy God. But he offers us more than just pardon. He offers us more than just forgiveness. He offers us oneness. See, that's kind of the end of the process, right? Genesis 2 tells us that that we are to leave, we are to hold fast, and then we become one flesh. So in what sense do we become one flesh with God? What does that mean for us to become one with God? Well, here's the thing. God's goal isn't simply to get us. God's goal is to give himself to us. Remember why we were created? Not because he needed us but because he wanted to share his glory. He wanted the overflow of his joy to be appreciated, loved, and glorified. God wants to be one with us. John 17 is a passage where Jesus is praying 
for his disciples. It's often called the high priestly prayer. It comes toward the end of his ministry, and, and it's an incredibly rich passage. But the word one keeps popping up throughout his prayer. And we'll just look at a couple of verses. John 17, 11 says this, Holy Father, he's praying for his disciples, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So the first gift that he prays for, for his disciples, that they might collectively, as his body, no oneness, that there might be a sense in which community, that there's a community within the body of Christ that is richer than any form of community outside of the body of Christ, that they might be one even as God is one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, giving and being given to, knowing and being known, loved and being loved, appreciated and being appreciated, no hiding, no fear, no condemnation, complete love and acceptance. There's a sense in which we are being called as the body of Christ to experience that kind of oneness. And he prays that we might experience it. But he goes on beyond that a little bit farther in the passage. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Now catch what he says. He's not just saying we're one up here and they're one down here. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. He's praying that they might experience a level of oneness that is not just about human connectedness. It's about oneness between humans and God, a oneness that we can't produce through affinity and affection and common interests and and, and cheering for the same sports teams. It's the kind of oneness that only comes as two people are moving into greater oneness with God, even as they move into greater oneness with each other. See, he doesn't want to just give us a pardon. He wants to make us his family. He doesn't want to just give us forgiveness. He wants to give us himself. You realize this is the greatest treasure of heaven? It's funny, like, I'll talk to some Christian people, and, and, and we'll talk about this idea of heaven, which is kind of a foggy idea for a lot of people. But, you know, it's like, what, what is heaven? And I've seen guys, like, chart out, like, oh, man, there's all these crowns in heaven. There's like 15 different crowns in heaven. I've charted them all out, and I'm planning to get every one of them, right? I'm going to get all 15 crowns. I'm going to have a mansion in heaven. Jesus said he was going to prepare a place for me, and it was going to be a mansion, and I'm going to get a mansion in heaven. Well, you know what the greatest treasure of heaven is? God. <laughs> it's not a crown. It's not a mansion. It's not honor. It's, not, it's God himself. Let me ask you this. What is the greatest gift you can give another person? Your stuff, even if it's incredibly valuable, is that the greatest gift you can give somebody? An heirloom, a car, your money? What's the greatest gift you can give another person? Yourself. That's the most costly, most valuable gift you can give another person, to give yourself. And God gives us himself. The greatest treasure of heaven is God himself because in God we have the source of everything that is glorious and fulfilling and good and exciting and joyful. In giving us himself, he gives us everything that makes life worthwhile. You know what heaven's going to be? Heaven's going to be one great adventure of moving into greater and greater and greater discovery of what it means to be one with God. 
greater discovery of what it means to move toward the center of everything that is glorious, and it will be a never-ending eternal trip because there is no end to the glory of God. Oneness. He gives us the gift of oneness as a result of his pursuit of us, of his leaving, of his creating a covenant, of his paying a price that we couldn't pay, of his wooing us and winning us over with a display of that love and an invitation into relationship. Oneness. Now, this is what Paul said was a great mystery. Hmm. Paul looks at at Genesis 2.24. He reads that verse and he's like, holy cow, that's the mystery. This verse isn't primarily about us. This verse is not primarily about marriage. This verse is primarily about God. Marriage is a symbol. We have a storytelling God who is telling a progressive story of redemption. And as he tells that story, he weaves into his creation symbols of all kinds that point us ultimately to the one who's writing the story. Marriage is one of those symbols that points us to something much greater than marriage. And that's why marriage is never simply about the people who are married. It's not about my personal happiness, primarily. There's a God who created marriage, a God who was glorified in marriage, a God who created that marriage to ultimately point to His character, His work, and His love. Now, you want to get your your mind blown a little bit. This, This kind of grabbed me this week was this. You know that verse that we keep talking about, Genesis 2.24? Well, what happened in Genesis 3? Genesis 3 is the account of man's rebellion against God. When did God weave this symbol into the created order? Before mankind even rebelled against him. Before mankind even rebelled against him, God was weaving a symbol of his redemptive story into the created order. He had committed himself before we were even born, before we were even created to be the God who would redeem and restore. The God who would wed himself to a broken and wayward and sinful people and restore them, not with their glory, but his. God created oneness in marriage to point to our need of an even greater kind of oneness with him. So the good news of sex really is about the good news of Jesus. The good news of marriage really is about pointing us to a greater message of good news. So in in conclusion, I want to give you some practical applications about how this can apply to your marriages and how it can apply to your relationships. We're going to dig into a lot more of this this weekend at at our retreat, at at our marriage conference. But what does it mean for us to live this out? This is obviously primarily about God, but... How does this affect us? Well, it affects us this way, you guys. We can pursue spiritual oneness in our marriages. We can honor. See, sex isn't just a thing we do. If you're having problems with sex in your marriage, your problem isn't sex. I get the opportunity as a pastor to sit down across the table from a lot of people, and, and I get to ask awkward questions. It's kind of fun. Like, I get first time, like, having a cup of coffee with somebody. I know he's married. You know, I'll just be like, dude, how's your sex life? Really weird question, right? I mean, who gets to ask stuff like that? I do, because I'm a pastor. And what's awesome is that not only do I get to ask it, but there's like this moment where I can see it on their face where like they realize they have to be bluntly honest. I mean, it just happens. People start pouring it out. It's like, well, let me tell you about it, right? And I'm like, okay, let's do this, right? So we have those conversations. Well, here's the deal. 
I, I always give the same advice. If somebody's having difficulty in their sex life and marriage, if there's a lot of tension, if there's awkwardness or pain or, or distrust or a lack of intimacy, the problem isn't sex. The problem's going to go to an emotional level and more deeply to a spiritual level. The solution for solving that problem has nothing to do with improving your sex life. Well, a little bit. But it honestly has more to do with, with moving into a deeper sense of oneness. It's going deep to go high. You have to go deep to experience a greater level of oneness. And so it becomes about coaching them how to move into a greater sense of emotional and more importantly, spiritual oneness. Because as I told you guys before, we can move into emotional oneness. There's tons of books out there that tell you how to do that. I can teach you and I can, we can talk all about how to provoke your wife's heart with emotional warmth. And that's great, but it's only going to take you so far and it will ultimately fail you. You have to go deeper. You have to start fostering a level of spiritual oneness with your wife. Together, you have to fight not against each other, but for your marriage by moving more deeply into that spiritual connectedness. So what does that look for? Well, let me just give you a few suggestions. First of all, start praying for each other. Start praying for each other and with each other. It's amazing to me how many guys will come to me, and, and it's not amazing because I know my own heart will happen. This happens, you know, it's like, dude, I'm struggling in my marriage. Yeah, you praying with your wife? Uh, no, never even thought about that. There's something about prayer that's incredibly intimate. There's something about prayer that's incredibly intimate. You guys, what ends up happening is when we have struggle in our marriage, when we're struggling with each other, we almost automatically start struggling with God. And what happens when we start struggling with each other and against God? What happens to us? We do the Adam and Eve thing. We go climb in the bushes and we hide. We hide from each other and we hide from God. Hiding is a great place to foster resentment and bitterness and separation. It's not a great place to move into oneness. Prayer requires you to come out and expose yourself. Prayer requires you to be honest, right? It's really hard when you're praying for each other to be like pretending because you know that God's like there, right? And he can kind of like see you and your heart and he knows, right? Prayer is this great place for you to be honest and to come clean and to share your feelings and, and ultimately to pray not just with each other, but for each other. You know, it's incredibly hard to stay mad at people you pray for. You ever found that to be true? I'm not saying like it's this instantaneous thing. I'm mad at you, so I'm gonna pray for you now I feel better. What I'm saying is if you continually pray, for them. God will change your heart toward them because you'll be praying God's best for them and God will shape your heart in response to that prayer. It's an incredibly intimate thing. Ladies, I mean, you know this, right? Most ladies I talk to, if their husband initiates praying with them, it's an incredibly romantic thing. It stirs their heart because it's that going deep. It's that level of care and intimacy that goes beyond simply, I like the way you look. I like the way you make me feel. It's, I'm following God, and I'm inviting you to follow, to, to follow with me. So men, initiate. Pray with your wife. Pray for your wife. Pray for each other. Singles, you need to be careful with this. <laughs> it's dangerous to pray with somebody of the opposite sex because it does create a deep sense of intimacy, right? Um, when I met my wife, I was 17 years old. I wasn't even a believer. She was. We didn't like each other. She thought I was a show-off. I thought she was arrogant. Um, and we didn't, we didn't, there just wasn't a whole lot of chemistry there. That's just the honest reality. I mean, there just wasn't a whole lot going on there. But we were in the same circle of friends. And so we were constantly hanging out with each other because we were hanging out with our friends. And our friends had crushes on each other and all that fun stuff. And then I became a believer. 
about halfway through my freshman year in college. And by the end of my freshman year in college, I'm like lit up and I'm like, I'm trying to find people to pray with, but I have early classes and I can't find anybody who's willing to get up at 6 a.m. to pray with me except Lauren. So Lauren starts meeting me at 6 a.m. And we're praying together. Now, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just a punk kid, right? I'm, we don't even, we have, we have, I had a girlfriend, she had a boyfriend. You know, it was this whole, like, we were both going through breakups. And, but we just started praying with each other and for each other. And pretty soon people are like, are you guys dating? We're like, no, we're not dating. Oh, there's something going on there. You know, I mean, pretty soon people are like, you guys got to get married someday. We're like, yeah, you're crazy. <laughs> and then we started dating. And then, you know, it was one of those, I mean, it was really one of those weird things. We looked at each other one day and we're like, you know, I think I love you. Holy cow. What happened? It was this intimacy that was born out of this fostering of, of spiritual oneness, to tell you the truth. And that has been one of the most beautiful blessings God has. I didn't intentionally do that. I wasn't that smart. God just, that was a gracious gift from God. It was a gracious gift from God. And that's been like the, the bedrock, man. That, that, that's where we run to when we're in trouble, when we're having difficulty, when things are stressed, man. It's like, why don't we just pray together? Let's start there, right? Right now, we don't, I don't even want to talk to you, right? I know you don't want to talk to me, but let's talk to God together. Let's do this. Let's pursue God together and allow God to change our hearts toward one another, praying with each other. Singles, be careful, because it does foster an incredible sense of intimacy. Uh, dudes, if there's a young lady that needs prayer, find a young lady to pray with her. Seriously, that'll guard her heart. That is a step to protect her so that she doesn't have her heart stirred in affection toward you in a way that you're not willing to respond to, respect, and protect. All right, second thing we need to do is lead one another. We need to lead one another. Man, we talked about this two weeks ago. We don't want to focus as husbands on making our wives happy. We don't ascribe to that. That is not biblical. Happy wife, happy life is not a biblical concept. Right? Our goal is not to make our wife happy. Our goal is to, to lead our families toward holiness. Trusting that if we honor God, God's going to bless us, right? Happiness is a byproduct of holiness. It is not the focus and, and pursuit of our hearts. Otherwise, we actually undercut the security and strength of our marriages. So we need to focus on imaging Christ in our marriage. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. We need to, to love our wives in a self-sacrificial, laying down our lives kind of way. Initiating and trusting God to bring in the change that needs to happen. Wives... Um, don't focus on changing your husband. Focus on respecting your husband. Scripture says that men are supposed to image Christ in the marriage relationship. Women are supposed to image the church. You want to know one of the most powerful ways to change the heart of your husband? See in him the hero of the story. See in him the image of Christ. And by you respecting him and honoring him in that way, you're actually working with the work of the Holy Spirit. You can't be the Holy Spirit. You can't bring the change, but God can. Respect Him. See in Him the image of Christ. And God will change His character. And you'll honor Jesus in the, in the process. The book of Hebrews, um, the author of the book of Hebrews in, in the 10th chapter wrote to his audience, he said, provoke one another to love and good deeds. You know, as married couples, we get really good at provoking each other, don't we? We know how to push all the buttons. We know what to say. We know what to do or not do. That's going to provoke them. What this is saying is that we need to get good at learning how to provoke them to love and to good deeds. We need to get good at, 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 at leading them, 
That's what leadership is. Leadership is initiation that causes a response. That's what leadership is. We can lead in our marriages by simply honoring Christ and trusting that Christ will bring the change that, that he will change, that he will bring. And that brings us to the third point, and that's this. Honor Christ um, by honoring your spouse. In your marriage relationship, honor Christ by honoring your spouse. Even if they don't deserve it. Honor Christ first. Remember, a marriage covenant is never just between you and your spouse. A marriage covenant is, is you, your spouse, and God. And God created your marriage, and he cares for your marriage in a way you never could because it reflects his character. It reflects his redemptive story. He is for your marriage. Honor Christ in your marriage by honoring your spouse, even if they don't deserve it even if it doesn't feel good. Now, I realize that I'm talking to a lot of different people in a lot of different situations. We have some people whose, whose marriages are, are on the rocks. Um, things are rough. You're, you have a hard time being civil with each other for 10 minutes. What do I advise? This is what I advise. Honor your spouse. Not because they deserve it, but because Christ does. Give God the glory by giving the honor to your spouse. They don't deserve, but, but God does. So respect your husband, even if he's not respectable. Love your wife, even if she's not lovable. Honor your spouse. Make choices to honor your spouse. That doesn't mean that you make yourself a foolish victim if they're abusive or mean or cruel or wicked. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying honor your spouse honor, as you honor Christ. Some of you, honestly, you've gone through a divorce, you're going through one. Your marriage isn't just on the rocks. It's wrecked. It's, it's broken. It's not coming back. What do I say to you? Honor your spouse. Don't give your heart to bitterness, self-focus. Don't allow your heart to become self-righteous. Recognize that in the middle of that pain, God still has a work of redemption or restoration for you. God will meet you in the brokenness, and he loves you. He laid down his life to win you. You are his, and he will win you with his love. Honor your spouse, not because they deserve it, but because you want to honor Christ who died for you. Some of you, your marriages aren't in bad shape. They're in great shape. What's my suggestion for you? Don't ride easy. Don't think because everything is good, it stays good. Don't neglect the deep things. Don't neglect the best things. Because when you crash, you'll crash hard. Go deep. Lead. Spiritually. Honor your spouse. By following God. Men, you can't lead where you're not going. Go deep with God. Get into the Word. Pray. Grow. Ladies, you can't follow your husband if you're not following God. Get into the Word. Pray. Honor your spouse as you would honor Christ. We have a God who loves us. We have a God who's bluntly honest with us. And He's willing to tell us how ugly we are in our sin, and yet in the same breath, tell us how incredibly loved we are. And that he doesn't love us because we're beautiful. He loves us to make us beautiful. 
He loves us not because we've earned it, but because he has, and he will put his glory on us for his name's sake, for our joy. If we fill our vision with that, it will renew our vision for our marriages.